Hello, technologically savvy person. Yes, I'm talking to you. And since you're so technologically savvy, get a website already. Get on one with Squarespace. They are the best service to set up your personal site or the site for your company or your writing or your photography or your uh, uh, D&D role-playing character. Does your Druid have a website? I don't think they do. You should get on that. Use Squarespace's beautiful templates and 24-7 customer support to have a beautiful, always-functioning website that's just right for you. How do you do it? Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also, also enthused about being new places. I think of it as an opportunity. I think it's really neat. And I was recently in London for the London Podcast Festival. Last week, we released the live episode that we did at that fest. And this is sort of a bonus episode for the overall process of sending me to the UK. Because I don't just tape one show when I go to a, a whole new country. Come on, there's such exciting people to talk to everywhere. One of the folks in the UK I decided to talk to is Adam Weirs. He's a cracked writer, editor, columnist, and more. You've definitely seen his byline on the site if you read it. And I'd never gotten to meet him in person, so I took the opportunity to bring him onto this episode because I, I feel like it's exciting to talk to British people in Britain. Isn't that nice? It is. And I talked to further exciting people from there because broadly, here's another way that I think being alive is more interesting than people think it is. We live in a world where about 100 years ago, the British Empire ruled a quarter of it. Uh, Both in terms of territory and population, the British Empire covered about a quarter of the world in a very sort of odd patchwork map of the entire world. And within a few decades of that point, they were suddenly not running much of it at all in a in a actively owning territory sense. And that's weird. That's a strange phenomenon in history. And so I wanted to learn all about it and, uh, and build an episode out of us finding out, uh, especially here in the U.S., what's going on with that. Because in my uh, American education, it did not really come up. As soon as the 13 colonies broke away from Britain, they were a side character. Forget them. It's all about adding 37 more colonies. You know what I mean? Uh, they're, they're states, but you get it. And so in addition to Adam Weirs, I am joined by two phenomenal experts on this episode of the podcast. One of them is Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley. She's a lecturer in 20th century British history at the University of Southampton. The other is Dr. Kim Wagner. He is a senior lecturer in British imperial history at Queen Mary University of London. And the two of them have enormous expertise on this enormous subject. Uh, The subject more or less boils down to why there isn't a British empire anymore. Uh, One more time, that is why there isn't a British empire anymore. That's also an idea that we interrogate a little bit because there is sort of a British empire still. But to the broader point of it, it's something that we could spend 100 hours talking about. And Adam and these experts were very, very kind to to do just one with me, you know, because I, I know they know more than this. And they shared so much of what they know in digging into this uh, subject. 
This episode will also be footnote heavy, uh, especially there will be a very basic, simple rundown of all of the different places that were part of the British Empire. If you're not very familiar with that, in really broad strokes, they controlled an enormous portion of the continent of Africa, uh, an enormous portion of South Asia, also uh, what's now Malaysia and Singapore, the city of Hong Kong and and certain other uh, cities and territories in East Asia, and also many islands in the Caribbean, Belize. I guess I'm just listing the whole thing, aren't I? Any Anyway, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and uh, a few more things that I've failed to mention. So it was an enormous empire at that height about 100 years ago today. So this episode is about how those places became their own independent countries kind of all at once in a way that's very different from how the United States became an independent country long before them. It will also draw a bit on the psychological impact of a country doing that process uh, and how it may relate to certain current events in British news today. And I think that's enough set up for it, so please sit back or stand at attention outside Buckingham Palace. Because again, I, I addressed you last week and you keep it up this week. You're just standing like one of those palace guards and somehow you have headphones in there. I really, I really commend you because that probably makes that job less boring. Good job. And either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Cracked Zone Adam Weirs and Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley and Dr. Kim Wagner. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Thank you all so much for diving into what is one of the, the most enormous topics in all, in all of history and time and everything. And it is uh, the British Empire and, and how it went away to kind of give us some grounding in, in the initial stuff to look at. From what I've read about it and what I get the sense of, it hit its biggest size in terms of territory and people and everything else in the 1910s. And then by the 1970s, just, you know, six or so decades later, almost all of it was independent. Uh, and and I know there's a lot of detail in there, but is that generally accurate? Is that generally right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's its largest territory in 1927, which is the point oh, at which yeah. Britain is given control of the German colonies that they lost in the First World War. So oh, they reached yeah, yeah. that kind of high point by actually taking over someone else's empire. That's the, <laughs> that's the like, moment of peak peak imperialism. As far as I can tell, the American Revolution is sort of a weird outlier where it's a British colony that broke away long before the 1900s. Is, is that right on? Like, it seems like all of the rest of them achieved independence sometime in the 20th century there. It is. Uh, and it, it was really quite important uh, in the sense that it, it signals a, a turn to the east. It's mm. after the loss of the American colonies that the British really become involved uh, to a far greater degree in, in, in India, for instance. So, uh-huh. so there is the, the loss of, of part of the empire means uh, greater attention to another part. Was that almost kind of a, a psychological way to handle, we just lost this enormous colony, how do we feel good now? But also trade, plus, of oh, course, sure. the French. The French had aided the Americans during the, the revolution, and so the British turned to India to fight the French there as well. So there's all yeah. sorts of ramifications in terms of European, mm-hmm. purely European rivalries that sort of percolate all over the world. Wow. And the British are still, obviously, even after the American Revolution and your 13, your 13 colonies, <laughs> the ones that you belong to, um, after they break away, you know, Britain still has a very substantial Caribbean presence. And obviously, the history of British slavery is such that actually after the American Revolution, British slavery in the Caribbean continues at a very high rate and a very kind of murderous and deadly rate until the end of the slave trade in 1807 and then the end of slavery in the British Caribbean in the 1830s. 
So it still wow. has that focus. You know, there's still Britain is still very active to its west as well as its east. It's just just not in on North America. Especially in a pre-easy communication era, this was an incredibly difficult empire to run. It must have been. A lot of just notes given to people on boats, I feel like, was the entire system. Yes, and you can see yeah. the expansion in India, for instance. It's supposedly guided from London, but simply because of distance. By the time that an order has been sent to India and a reply has been sent back, yeah. perhaps asking for clarification, and then another reply, you know, it's been more than a year during which point in time, <laughs> politics have changed, new territories have been conquered, some have been lost. It's not, it's not an email you answer within 50, uh, you know, five minutes yeah. of receiving it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we are talking about big bureaucracies as well. Wow. It leads, in Africa, as, as, um, in particular as Britain's kind of expanding its colonial control over Africa, the role of the man on the spot, uh, which, which obviously is a man always, um, <laughs> becomes very important because the man on, on the spot has to be able to make decisions. It has to be, de- you know, as much as this is supposed to be coming from metro- the metropole, power has to be delegated to people who, you know, are chosen in their role as, you know, either explorers or traders or colonial governors because they are expected to be able to make these decisions on behalf of the British crown and the British government. And it's actually how, you know, the heroes of empire is sort of the discretionary powers of the mm-hmm. man on the spot. And he can either, you know, succumb to the tropics and the illness and the heat, or he can, you know, in a sense, forge his own destiny. There's a lot of sort of uh, mercenary actions going on. We can see that in, in the expansion in, in India in particular, where governor generals, they almost single-handedly decide to make quite substantial political decisions. They can do wow. that because of the distance from London. That's all fascinating. And, and then in general, with knowing about this, this period and, and this extremely long and elaborate process and system that all happened, as far as like the average British person, if, if that is such a thing, uh, what do people learn about it? I'm in particular curious about Adam as, as someone who went through, I assume, regular school in England. That's not what it's called, but you know what I mean. Yeah. When I was in high school about 20 years ago, we did not cover it really in any kind of broad sense. We really? just did not cover it at all. It was when it was a discussion of empire, it was more as an aside to something else. So with regards to India, it was the talking about Gandhi mm. or World War Two, And when it was talking about Australia, it was usually in relation to like sending prisoners and transportation. Because yeah. those, are, those are the highlights I learned. That was that was all we knew was, and, and it was even like I think one of the earliest jokes on Crack dot com was Australia is full of dangerous animals and former prisoners. That's the that was the whole bit, and that was all we knew. That was our actual curriculum. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, it's gotten a lot better in recent years. The curriculum has been updated, so it is it is a subject that gets covered, but it's more of an elective for teachers to discuss. So it's not mandatory. What do you study then in like British history classes? I could speak for me. I studied the Victorians, the Tudors, World War One, World War Two, really just the hits. <laughs> there's, there's a joke in Britain that children at school study Hitler and the Henrys. Yes, oh, just wow. the Tudors <laughs> and Hitler. Henry, Henry the Eighth's wife. Yeah. Yeah. Spent about two months on that. Yeah. The Empire <laughs> got about two minutes. <laughs> And, and even if it is elective, uh, it's not specified how you teach it. Mm. So you can actually oh. teach the empire, which is, uh, you could say, it's a positive thing. There's that you know, level of, of freedom. But it also means that some kids come out of school with 
quite uh, particular takes on, on empire. The, the old, you know, conventional narrative about how, how Great Britain was and how yeah. everything emanated from Britain and people did go out and, and, and civilize the world and then look what happened once they left, which is that you have all these failed state crumbling and, and genocides because people, they get at each other's throats. So it's, it's a very uh, sort of celebratory yeah. narrative. Our countries are so alike, guys. Most, <laughs> most, school children, most school children in Britain would um, study the slave trade in some capacity, but often they study the how Britain ended the slave trade. So how wonderfully humanitarian and charitable Britain was for ending the slave trade, what, how wonderful William Wilberforce was for his campaigning against slavery. Okay. And they don't necessarily interrogate very much how it was that Britain was able to end the slave trade, which is that they were at that point the, the largest traders of slaves. Like that was just right. a naturally occurring slave <laughs> trade, and we went and just busted it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was. We did a good thing by ending the slave trade, and anything said against the empire is diminishing the empire. Wow. Yeah. You also get a lot of, there's a lot of language around the idea of apologizing for empire as well, which comes up a lot. And, and so when people start talking about the need to teach children, school children more about empire, this question about kind of collective shame comes up quite a lot. So the idea oh. is, you know, should we be ashamed of the empire? Should we apologize for the empire? Which is not really, it's not the right question historically. You know, it's not actually that, that useful or that. When we talk about teaching children about imperialism the national conversation always becomes you know well this is going to be lefty teachers very unpatriotic narratives about how terrible empire was and oh this is awful and we need to we should be celebrating britain's past that often is the way that the kind of conversation goes right it has got better there are a-level courses on decolonization for example that some students will take in schools big conversations national conversations are hard still about it yeah, we had a yeah. big fight about it at the end of last year because Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party, came out and said, when Labour comes into power, which might be now, I don't... <laughs> the way things oh, are going boy. in this country, it might have changed in the last 20 minutes. But he came out and said that a Labour government will make the discussion of slavery and colonialism and black history a mandatory part of the curriculum. And then, as you'd expect, the Tories came out and just kind of lay into him for it. <laughs> There's a good line here. It's from an MP who was responding to it and he said, It is incredible that Jeremy Corbyn aspires to be the leader of a country that he is apparently so ashamed of. Like, Man. you can't... And that's where, unfortunately, yeah. historical facts, they get left by the roadside or thrown under the bus because it's not about facts. It's about how people feel. And so when you say, <laughs> actually, you know, you, you've been so proud of the empire for so long and we abolished slavery and all that, but, you know, you're forgetting all the slavery that went before you abolished it. <laughs> right. You're actually criticizing people's sense of self and identity. Or yes, that's yes. how it is perceived. So there's a very sort of complex, I think, enmeshment of identity and history. We will footnote the uh, the article you picked out, Adam, with that MP, and it's like mirror world stuff for America. Like, mm -hmm. there's there's that guy with a different flag pin somewhere in Washington, D.C. right now uh, saying exactly <laughs> the same things about uh, what we did to the West and so on. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And I, you're so right, Kim, that I think it, it, it does seem like in both countries it, it's somehow everyone's present-day identity is that in the past, people uh, in our country did something amazing, we feel. But even then, it's factually wrong that lots, what gets taught to students in the quantities that it does is necessarily bad. A study came out a few years ago from a professor at the University of East Anglica, uh -huh. Anglia, which um, looked at the national curriculum, it looked at textbooks and talked to a lot of history teachers 
and it was overwhelmingly what was being taught was not biased towards the empire it wasn't these are the de facto bad guys it was a fairly balanced look at what went on so the current curriculum was pretty balanced yeah that's what they found it was that's good and so then as we look at this british empire going back to that uh, sort of basic idea that I think I think most Americans especially just don't know that it grew to this enormous size and then so rapidly scaled down before the world wars and in that sort of peak imperial period you mentioned Kim why were they bothering to colonize all these places what were I, I know they're all different I know that's an enormous question but uh, when Britain was going out and colonizing all these different corners of the world and we'll have a footnoted list of how massive an amount of territory it was uh, but what were they what were they hoping to get out of it in the first place? First of all, when we talk about the British Empire in singular, that's, that's a slight misnomer because it was different things at different points of time. I so see. if we look at sort of the early beginnings, uh, it's primarily trade, but trade is is never separate, so also economic profit. but that is never uh, separate from national interests, if you want. So the East India Company, for instance, in their flag, they had the Union Jack. So wherever British trade companies, they operated alongside Dutch, French, Portuguese trading companies all over the world. They also represented Britain. It was both the, the government and the official military, and then also these private companies like the East India Company. Well, or if, if we talk about the sort of the motif or so the, the rationale for, for establishing control in various parts of the world, yeah. these are all overlapping or intersecting interests. And then, of course, when you have other European trading companies, the French, for instance, then during the 18th century, you're going to compete against them, not just financially in terms of trade, but also politically. So it's a, it's a complex dynamic which kind of spurs on this gradual expansion. It's interesting because on one hand, the quite basic fact, actually, that a lot of the empire is colonized by companies, not by the government, by companies. Right? That's and fascinating. But on overlap, as Kim says, you also have kind of government interests there. And then overlaying all of this is a kind of a patina, a kind of pretense of the idea that this is also something to do with civilization. So whilst it is clearly, basically, it's capitalism and it's about great power status and it's about Britain being you know, top dog and, and controlling as much of the world as possible... There is a narrative at home, and, and for some people on the ground doing this, there is a narrative, this is about spreading civilization, and civilization is inextricably connected to Christianity. And so individuals involved in colonization might be you know, missionaries who are going out, who are not themselves necessarily immediately thinking about being motivated by British power overseas or by capitalism, and might be thinking much more about spreading Christianity, which is obviously kind of overlaid on, on very, you know, attitudes towards colonial people's that you know that their their kind of indigenous religions and cultures are naturally considered to be inferior to Britain's, and that this is the right. idea of kind of uplifting these civilizing these countries around the world. But you can't pull them apart. It's not just that civilization is used as a kind of fig leaf to hide trade and, and capitalism and things. It's that it's all kind of intermeshed. And that's interesting that it's, it's at least three or four things all at once, because then it seems like it gives people a rationale to colonize any place. Because in one there's the trade, and in the other there's there's spreading the obviously superior religion because it's superior because look at this empire we're doing. There was a re- there used to be a really traditional kind of historiography of British colonialism, which was that the British Empire was built in a fit of absence of mind. This is just historian John Seeley a long time ago who uh-huh. said that this was almost accidental. 
that Britain had set out to trade with all of these countries and had just sort of ended up with an empire that covered a fifth of the world's surface with 800 million people in it. You know, it's sort of... Yeah. And Who among us has not stepped out of the house one day? And just come back with accidentally. And, and, you know, there... That's Did you get the milk I asked for? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it, no, but I've got India. Like, um, yeah, they're just a country in the trunk. Like, yeah. oh boy. <laughs> it was on um, sale. Yeah, don't, don't, go, don't go empire hunting when you're hungry because you'll turn up. Um, but that was a seductive narrative for the British because it, wow. it didn't cast them as being these kind of, you know, rapacious, bloodthirsty, oppressive. That was that, you know, well, we were doing this trading. We were doing this, this uh, civilization. Our sort of liberal Western attributes meant that we were working in the world in this way. And we kind of amassed an empire almost incidentally. And it, it means you can avoid taking responsibility and you can avoid picturing Britain as an, a country which intentionally went out to build an empire. Although I do think that there, there is a degree of, of truth in it, in the sense that there was no master plan. Yes, definitely. There's nobody who sat down and said, okay, we're going to establish an empire mm-hmm. and do it this way. So, so it, it does have a sort of have as an aspect to the way that it develops over time. But that then becomes a convenient excuse for saying, you know, oh, well, you know, the natives wanted us to come. Or, yeah. you know, or, or we defeated right. the, the French. And so, oops, we, you know, got some more territory here and there. And it's actually quite helpful in explaining where Britain ends up with some colonies. Nyasaland, for example, which is modern day Malawi, which is a small, relatively poor area of Africa, doesn't have a particular strategic importance, not particular number of raw materials. And, and it's in a region that Britain is operating in, there's kind of trade interests and things. But it, it's not like Britain went out and went, right, we're going to go and colonize this place. It kind of happens because of other decisions that are going on. We've talked about a couple regions so far, but with India in particular, and when I say India, I mean the, the British India that also included Pakistan and Bangladesh and uh, and then nearby Burma. That is so interesting that, as you both mentioned earlier, private companies uh, steered a lot of this colonization. And and in my in my Googling and my reading, it seems like India was first taken over by the East India Company and not by the government, like just the East India Company traded and traded and suddenly they took it over well that's one way of putting it but yeah it was it was the east india company uh, territory right up till 1859 when it becomes a crown colony and when when did they first take land in a a decided fashion early 1600s so centuries of of this company yeah yeah. (laughs) but but for a very long time they are simply operating side by side with uh, other european trading companies Uh, and they have trade stations on the coast and they have to get permission from local rulers in order to operate the way they do. Oh. As late as 1830s, 1833, I think, the last Mughal emperor is still, uh, coins are still being minted with the Mughal emperor on the one side and the East India Company on the other side. So oh, the East India Company operates supposedly as a vassal of the Mughal emperor, at least to the extent of the, of the coinage right up to the 19th century. Although by that point of time, they are running everything and they've assumed complete control. But again, it's almost this conceit that, oh, we're just a trading company. By that point of time, from 1818, the majority of the profit of the East India Company is derived from land revenue rather than trade. Oh, so like like uh, like property taxes or something, and, and tax lines? tax revenue. Yeah, wow, these kind of things. So you can see by then, if it's no longer about spices and silk and trade between Europe and the Far East, a colony can in and of itself be profitable to run. Yeah, and and also one thing, just in case people don't know, what was the Mughal Empire? The Mughal Empire was was the uh, Islamic empire that that uh, controlled 
a large part of the South Asian subcontinent and, uh -huh. and more or less sort of matches the outline of, of what becomes British India. And, mm -hmm. and that empire is in decline throughout the 18th century, which is one of the reasons that the British are able to sort of fill that power vacuum that arises. So they, they weren't just so brilliant at trading and the military that they overthrew a country. Also, the country was sort of on the decline when they showed up. And you, you'll never have a colonial power assuming control without substantial collaboration or assistance mm -hmm. from local allies. Okay. And the British in India, they famously ruled India using Indian soldiers in British service. But that goes for all the colonies, really. Yeah, that's particularly Britain, actually. Um, the French Empire is a little bit more directly controlled from France and is a bit, has, a, has a slightly higher level of kind of control from the centre. Britain oh. rules through indirect rule. They rule, rule through collaboration. They rule through elites. They uh, practice divide and rule policies. They favour particular ethnic groups, perhaps in areas, which then causes huge problems, obviously, within the countries and after independence, when it you know really creates division. But sure. you're governing a huge empire with a very small number of people. You you have to be collaborating with people on the ground, and of course they face a lot of resistance as well. So they're they're both collaborating with and kind of having to push against resistance. From the ground as well. It's not this very smooth process of kind of coming in and becoming rulers. It's it's this very very messy, entangled process of colonial rule. And with India in particular, that is very interesting. That many many Indian soldiers were uh, incorporated into the overall British military and, and even helped run it. And Kim in particular, you've got an amazing story that I, I believe you've developed down to a book as well, but about Alum Beg. Yeah, he was uh, one of the Indian soldiers in uh, East Indian Company service who rebelled in 1857 during the big, what's known as a mutiny in Britain, but the Indian uprising. Mm -hmm. And for the reasons we've just discussed, British rule completely collapses the moment that their local allies turn against them for a whole variety of reasons. But the main thing is that the East India Company has so far pursued a non-interference policy because they were mainly interested in profit and trade. Okay. And so they haven't actually allowed missionaries to operate up till 1813. But after that period of time, uh, with the rise of uh, evangelicalism, you have an influx of, of, of sort of proselytizing sentiments, but also an attempt to actually civilize India. The colonial state penetrates further into Indian society. So instead of just being con uh, contented with, with collecting taxes, they're actually trying to regulate how people, they, how marriage, very, very basic thing and very private oh. thing. So, so people's entire way of life is being transformed by British rule. So by 1857, the, the Indian soldiers, they, they rise against the British. And for a few months during 1857, British rule in India is sort of hanging in the balance. But then the British, they, they suppress the uprising and they, t and they take a quite brutal revenge. And then Alan Beck was one of the thousands of, of Indian soldiers who were captured and he was, um, executed by being tied to a cannon and blown to pieces and sort of... Oh, my God. Sort of a performative ritual of uh, reasserting colonial authority. And the reason why I wrote a book about it, because an Irish officer who was present at the execution took up the head, turned it into a skull and took it back home as a trophy. And um, I am today the custodian of this skull. I'm trying to repatriate it to India. I know this has happened with empires across all of history, but, but that's such a, a juxtaposition of... Ah, we will bring our versions of, of religion and marital practices to this country to, to lift it up. And then as soon as there's a revolt, immense brutality, uh, just really, really awful. That's a really interesting dynamic. And that's one that's shared amongst all Western imperial powers, including America, is that 
the civilizing power is it provides a sort of complete moral justification for anything. So mm -hmm. when you do see the the necessity for for force or suppression, it's actually the the savagery in inverted commas of the natives that forces civilized people to act like savages and they're quite explicit in using that terminology mm -hmm. so the british they use an indian type of execution blowing people from cannon of course supposedly that's the only language that the natives understand but what distinguishes savages from civilized people is that we've we're not savage right <laughs> but then they force us to become savage as we are expanding and, and bringing them civilization so we have it at the very heart of, of western imperialism we have this this deep conundrum which is that it's predicated on the notion that this is a nice benevolent endeavor yeah and yet it is predicated on racialized violence and exploitation which somehow has to be explained away because also is there an an overall process throughout the the history of this empire where the particularly violent governance of places is is mostly racial because it's because the british empire it includes places like india and many parts of africa where where there are there are all kinds of uprisings and, and wars and fights over it and then also it includes australia canada new zealand it, it seems like those are governed very differently uh, in well, general i mean they are and they aren't in the sense that like the, the white people in canada and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand are indeed treated very, generally treated very, very kind of humanely by the British government. Although, of course, within that, there's a lot of uh, class obviously being very important in Britain in the 19th and 20th century means that the treatment of the Australian convicts who are being sent to Australia for punishment, you know, th th that's actually very brutal. And many of the convicts who are sent to Australia are being sent there for what we would now consider very minor crimes, very kind of classically being for stealing, for stealing food. You could be sent to Australia. And you might be sent for quite a short, you know, five years or something, but of course you can't come back. That's the first thing I'd say to that. The second thing is, of course, all of these places have indigenous populations who are treated extremely brutally by the British Empire. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, you know, kind of white Australian settlers, after the initial process of convicts being sent there, you know, you have many more people are encouraged to go there by the British government and you have increasing programs like the £10 POM scheme, which throughout the 20th century encourages British people to emigrate to Australia. I'm sorry, uh, ten pound palm. Yeah, so or palms are what Australians call Brits. So the ten pound palm scheme was an assisted passage scheme to Australia. You could buy cheap cheap tickets and and go to Australia and emigrate to Australia. This enables Australia to maintain a very racist immigration policy, and it also enables Australia to maintain a very brutal policy towards its indigenous population, who are treated very badly, who do are not they don't get the right to vote universally until the 1960s. So. Wow. And there's the things like the process by which children are taken from uh, Australian indigenous populations, which in, in Canada as well with the residential schools schemes, for example, where First, oh, yes. First Nation children are taken from Canadian uh, First Nation families and are kind of separated. So oh, there is brutality yeah. in all of those places. It's just yes, not, right. it doesn't look the same, maybe, as, as uprisings being put down. That makes complete sense. As I think about these Australian things in particular, it, it sounds like maybe it's the most American style of, of all the, the mm. places there because America has such brutality toward indigenous populations, separating children from their yep. parents and their culture, uh, and then also explicitly racist immigration policies yeah. throughout its history. But we aren't taught that in the US that like, oh, our buddy's Australia, extremely similar. Trump quite recently right, praised the Australian, praised oh, Maori. Yeah. He, he praised their incredibly brutal immigration system when he was talking about children in cages so the parallels kind of continue i think since we're talking about how 
the British Empire is taught, America is the missing dimension of, of how imperialism is taught. And I, I think oh. American historians are also waking up to this fact now that you know, America did have an empire, and it did have imperial policies. And still has an empire, arguably. Uh, absolutely, we, we, which is very explicitly based on or inspired by the British Empire mm. in, in many ways. Is one reason that the British Empire has, in, in very modern times, slowed down or been less of a thing just because America kind of took that mantle up, and even in a lot of the same places? It's interesting because when Britain's going through decolonization, the narrative is often that Britain's close diplomatic relationship with America means it has to embrace decolonization because the Americans are anti-imperial. And the Americans, <laughs> Americans are very keenly oh. anti-imperial. Oh, we telling people that. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, and so the, the um, quote-unquote special relationship between Britain and America is seen to be threatened by Britain maintaining an empire. It's fair, often fairly obvious that as Britain retreats from these places, American power moves into them. And Britain is often quite resistant to decolonize because they are anxious about American power expanding. Um, they are anxious about newly independent states turning to America for um, alliances in the Cold War, for example, and not being kind of sufficiently connected to Britain. And America actually at many points asked Britain to maintain empire. In 1967, at the end, in the late 1960s, when Britain decides to withdraw from east of Suez, and they decide for, to withdraw. It's the sort of final bit of decolonization, really. They decide to withdraw from all of their military bases east of east of Egypt, including Singapore, oh, which is said, obviously the big. They said big just one. the canal. There's the point, and we're everything. Everything east, east of that, which it. which was the kind of it was what was sort of left. It was mostly military bases, but Singapore, which was Britain's kind of big, that was the big thing they were going to leave. And yeah. and when George Brown, the British Foreign Secretary, goes to America to say, right, this is what we're going to be doing. The response from the State Department was, be British, George. Be, how can you betray us like this? <laughs> the Americans are furious and they want Britain to maintain that empire because they see it as strategically important. I mean, yeah. I, I had my childhood in America and we are very big on peer pressure. It is a this thing is... we do and uh, it sounds right. <laughs> you're, you're a lot bigger than us and you can, you can push us around if you want to. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because they want to support you. They want to build you a website so you're set up online. Everybody wins. And everybody wins no matter what you're trying to do with that site. Maybe you're looking to start a new business. Maybe you're looking to showcase your work. Maybe, and I, I mentioned this before, but maybe you have a D&D character who needs a website, right? How will people know that you are a druid? who is also a tiefling, which is a very interesting uh, race for your class to be, I think. You know, why don't you try that? And then why don't you build them a website? Because here's how it would go. You would get into Squarespace, right? They would give you beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. Suddenly, boom, it's the perfect druid tiefling website. Also, your website will be optimized for mobile right out of the box. So when people look on their phones right in the middle of the campaign, they're like, really, you have a website for this character? I'll see. And then they will see, and it'll look great. They won't even have to leave the table to check. Also, buying domains is very simple on Squarespace. I'm not going to give a sample domain for this Druid Tiefling website because I don't want somebody to take it before you do. Think of the thing you want to call it and then buy it with Squarespace, and you'll have a website that's easy for people to find just by talking about it. Squarespace also empowers people who are not druid tieflings, such as designers, lawyers, artists, gamers, even restaurants and gyms, to turn great ideas into something real. So it works for everybody. Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked. Offer code cracked.
also with the, the overall teaching of this uh, imperial stuff, how much is American history taught in British schools and in, in British culture? Because I feel like in American schools that I was in, we learned about Britain for the revolution, us breaking away. Mm -hmm. There was one footnote where he burned down the White House. And then uh, in like World War II, Britain comes back in the picture. That's about all we got. I don't really think we did America much. Civil rights. Civil rights. Civil rights, yeah. We like civil rights really? on it. Well, we like civil rights on our curriculum because it enables us to tell stories about how racist the Americans are. Um, <laughs> and it helps us to avoid thinking about decolonization or race relations in Britain because we can tell this story about civil rights in America. So Selma to Montgomery is is a, a GCSE paper, something you might study at 15 or 16. But that's that's amazing. So there's very little American history other than that civil civil rights era. Uh, maybe civil, civil war? Yeah, well, foreign policy is about Cold War. There's a there's oh, a module sure. 1945 to 19 okay. I don't know 1991 maybe. I want to loop a, a ways back to Africa uh, because that was such an enormous part of the the British Empire. We'll have uh, the map footnoted, uh, but they had mm -hmm. basically a strip of land uh, from Egypt all the way to South Africa, and then also several colonies in West Africa. It seems like a lot of that African colonization was competitive with other European powers, uh, and even uh, beyond the way the rest of colonization was. Yeah, so the quite unfortunate terminology for the initial colonization of Africa is the scramble for Africa. In 1885, there was a conference in Berlin where the European powers got together, and people often think that at this conference they sort of drew all over the map of Africa and divided it up. They didn't do that. They set up rules for colonization of Africa. And so they said, if you're going to take a colony, you need to um, display your flag and you need to really take it. And this was because there had been a couple of incidences where Britain and Portugal and Belgium had accidentally almost gone to war by accidentally invading each other's colonies in Africa and not realising that they were oh. wandering into each other's territory. And so after 1885, suddenly the impetus for European powers and European colonial powers being Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, a little Portugal, a little, is that you really have to claim this land. You have to go in there and you have to you have to put in an administration, you have to get your flag up, you have to say, right, this is ours. And so the scramble oh. for Africa becomes this fight for dominance, as far as Britain is concerned, very much between Britain and France. Belgium, take the Belgian Congo, which is an enormous stretch of land in the, in the centre of Africa. Britain's trying to build this Cape Town to Cairo. thing. They want to build a railway, they want to have a railway Cape Town to Cairo. Oh, they actually, um, they wanted a physical corridor. Yeah. Wow. Part of why Africa is important to Britain is actually India. Britain needs, initially they need South African ports because sailing to India requires stopping off in South Africa in order to refuel, to, you know, maybe seek medical attention, to pick up food, to trade before you can go to India. And then after the Suez Canal is built through Egypt, that's much quicker. You can go through the Mediterranean and go through the Suez Canal and come out essentially in the Indian Ocean. Okay. But they, they need to control these spaces in order to control access to India. You know, India being the sort of thing, the jewel in the crown of the British Empire. Oh, it was like a special yeah. uh, highlight. And then, of course, the West African colonies are initially, this, this is where British slave trading is happening. So the West African colonies mm. is where Britain's picking up slaves to then take to the Caribbean, where they are selling slaves, filling up their um, ships with rum and sugar and bringing that back to Britain. So you have that kind of triangle trade there. So those West African colonies, Nigeria, Gold Coast, which when independent becomes Ghana, that's initially slave trading colonies, which then become British colonies. So that sort of explains this sort of regional... The patchwork of yeah. it and the 
structure of it. South Africa is complicated because the the Dutch settle in South Africa, the Boers, for for a long time until the uh, 1902 and then into the 20th century, there's two kind of rival colonial powers in South Africa, the, the Boers uh, and the British, yeah. which leads to the Boer War, but also partly explains the apartheid system because this kind of contesting between the white British and white Boer populations leads to a kind of animosity between these two groups and that in 1948, when the Boer population kind of take control of the political ruling of South Africa, it's at that point that British colonial rules, which had been very kind of oppressive and racist, are mm. kind of formalised by the by the Boer population into an apartheid system. The the one thing we know in America about South Africa is the apartheid system, yeah. and so that that has roots with the British. Yeah, it's not just a. I guess I knew it was also a Dutch colony. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It seems like a lot of the entire world owes a lot of its formatting and, and government structures to just the British. Either they directly set it up and it's still there or people indirectly imitated it. How responsible does Britain feel for all that? Britain believes itself to be the mother of parliaments. Oh, that's is, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Magna Carta, I suppose, and all that. It's very good. Something lovely that we have given the world through imperialism. I mean, there's still borders on, on maps which are imperial borders. Right, straight sure. li- straight lines on maps are often imperial borders because borders between countries aren't, aren't straight lines, right? They're geographic. They go along rivers or along mountains and things. Straight lines are two countries sitting down and thrashing out an agreement. Yeah, and right. Borders which cut across contested areas are often imperial. The British, when they're decolonizing in Africa, are frightened of small states. They think small states are likely to be difficult to govern and that they might, during the Cold War context in particular, that they might be kind of pushed around really easily and kind of won over by the Russians. So they don't want small states, they want big, big states. Mm-hmm. And so they're unwilling to decolonize into small groups with lots of small independence movements. They want to create big countries and that often causes a lot of problems. And then obviously in India, the decolonization process, the way that they deal with borders is incredibly, it has a huge legacy, is really important. The main problem of the large space uh, all being one country or one thing being that lots of people who maybe don't get along are in the same thing. Because I, as as I understand it, when British India becomes independent, then there it's partitioned into primarily Hindu and primarily Muslim areas, and and enormous amounts of people are displaced, and there's a lot of trouble. Yeah, the, the establishment of of uh, or the partition of India, which then gives rise to Pakistan, which is an avowedly Islamic state, whereas India is supposedly a secular state. There's still a large amount of, of Muslims in India because India is so vast, but it's uh-huh. supposedly secular. That borderline was drawn up in a matter of weeks by a British official who had never been to India before, who basically oh, sat no. with some maps and a red pen. Today, historians will describe it as a genocide, what happens, because the British basically pull out and you have a huge dislocation uh, and movement of people, something like 12 million people move back and forth between India and Pakistan. Mm. 12 million. And hundreds of thousands are killed or permanently displaced. With that Indian history in particular, I only, I think the only time it came up in school for me was that I took an advanced placement U.S. history class and the test for it run by the National College Board happened before the end of the school year. So then we watched some movies to fill out the rest of the mm-hmm. semester. And we watched Gandhi, the, the yeah. Ben Kingsley movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't know, I don't know if that comes up in school here. Sometimes. The lessons that British people choose to learn from Gandhi are often interesting as a historian. The thing people know about Gandhi is nonviolent resistance. Right? The thing people yeah. know about Gandhi is that Gandhi was peaceful. Yeah, same in the US, yeah. And so that is often used to create a narrative whereby 
Gandhi was peaceful, the independence movement was peaceful, this must mean that decolonization was oh, peaceful, right? If right. it's the thing you know about decolonization is that is that the Indian leader of decolonization believed in peaceful protest. It, one, it doesn't talk at all about like the very righteous and understandable anger on behalf of Indian people. It doesn't talk about the multiplicity of different groups of independence movements and, and, and you know, across the empire, all of the different groups. But it also frames that process as being somehow peaceful or being somehow connected to that. It's one of the sort of conventional conservative narratives, the sort of the yeah. retreat from empire, which was, it's almost a continuation of, of the imperial project itself. It's like, oh, now we have now civilized you mm -hmm. and so we can now leave you to it. And there's a sense that the French and the Portuguese were sort of bogged down in these brutal wars of decolonization, whereas the British, who had close ties to the local population, a deep cultural understanding and sensitivity, mm -hmm. left in an orderly fashion. And that's simply not true. <laughs> the, the British believe their empire to have been more humane than the other European empires, very much, um, oh, because this yeah. racial hierarchy is partly about Britain and its own empire, but it's also, you know, Britain fundamentally is more democratic than France, right? Like, Britain is essentially <laughs> better at empire than France. Oh, yeah. Um, America's more democratic, too. Tell me about it. Right? So, oh, they, yeah, yeah. Um, so they believe the empire to have been more humane, the British empire to have been less extractive, less exploitative. They look at France in Algeria. They look at Belgium in the Congo. You'll often read narratives of decolonization, including, for example, in the material that the Home Office provides in its citizenship test where you have to learn some British history, which will talk about, you know, Britain handing over power to the imperial subjects. The language at the time was very much, they've come of age. They have, these, these countries <laughs> have become a, mature enough for self-government, and so they will have this handed over to them. And, and, right. and now, often, a lot of British people believe that, you know, we got to the point and we kind of mutually decided Britain would retreat. And, and firstly, obviously, that completely undermines the role of independence movements, who often had decades of sustained resistance to colonization and often you know with their leaders being thrown in jail or being very violently suppressed by the british but it also ignores period long periods of so for example the malayan insert what's known in britain as the malayan insurgency which is over a decade of british uh, violent suppression of a malayan independence movement the mau mau in kenya from 1948 oh. to 1960 the british are violently suppressing an independence movement in kenya with like huge numbers of casualties and some terrible human rights abuses People don't really know about them and we bracket them as something different and we don't think about that, those as imperial wars or as wars of decolonization. Yeah. So there's this whole, there's this really this narrative that Britain just sort of one day woke up and decided imperialism was now wrong and handed <laughs> all these colonies back, which is now sort of why people, you know, and people look at the Commonwealth today and they get very frustrated sometimes that some of these countries are, are critical of Britain. You know, how could, how could these countries be so ungrateful? Right. We gave you Christianity and then we gave you independence. There's a few what are often kind of thought of as waves of decolonization. So you have, okay. I think India is, is, a, is a very separate process. Indian independence is very separate to African independence. Kind After of decision the First World to, War, yeah. is, is the first one, is the, the biggest one, arguably, is Ireland. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and also the Egyptian Revolution of 1919. So, I mean, 1919 is the crux point. That's where you, we usually talk about the beginning of decolonization. But even yeah. though they, they happen at the same time, they're quite different but even just the notion of colonial reforms in 1919 is by some considered as as some kind of surrender i mean there, there are british mm. people in 1919 who are talking about colonial rules slipping through their fingers and are sort of leaving india because we're going to be driven out anyway and it was mm. going to be another 20 years before indian independence happened so wow. so even very mild reforms 
were considered as, as some kind of massive loss for British prestige. So much, so much of, of what the empire is about is, is prestige. We cannot be perceived to be weak. And we literally have British politicians saying, if we give in in Ireland, then they're going to you know, demand things in India. If we give in in Egypt, they're oh. going to do that in Ireland. So it is... It is it's they, like they, a domino theory or yeah, something. Absolutely. Wow. Indian independence, which, which is a very long time coming and which comes after a period of kind of pr promises on the British government and some reforms, and then you have Indian independence at the end of the Second World War, 1947-1948. The first British African colony to become independent is not until 1957. Gold Coast becomes Ghana in 1957. There is a Gold Coast independence movement which fights hard for this. There's only a very small white British population in Ghana. The West African colonies for the British have very small kind of skeleton administrative kind of services there. Okay. East Africa is different because East Africa and particularly um, Rhodesia and Kenya and Uganda have large white populations, settler populations. Kenya is the sort of in the 1920s and 1930s is this sort of playground of empire for people um, who sit on verandas and drink gin and tonics and dress up in evening dress for dinner and have black servants who they treat terribly and you send their children back to England to go to boarding school. And there's this yeah. large settler population there, which means that independence, decolonization is much more difficult than in West Africa because you have to do something with these people who are themselves really, really resisting this. People, white people in Kenya do not want Britain to decolonize. And so it becomes much more complicated and there's a lot more resistance and they decolonize later. And um, the one that's particularly interesting is uh, Southern Rhodesia, which is present day Zimbabwe. Yeah. And if I remember right, Rhodesia is named after a British person? Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes, yeah. yeah. Um, who was a, a rampant colonialist yeah. and very unpleasant man. But um, <laughs> Southern, Southern Rhodesia in 1965, the white population declare independence. They issue the UDI, the Un Unilateral Declaration of Independence. They declare independence themselves from, from Britain, from the parliament, not the crown. So they, they keep the queen as their head of state, but they oh, declare yeah. independence from Britain and from the empire so that they cannot be decolonized, so that the white settlers can't be forced to go home or give their property up. And so there is oh. this brutal and bloody civil war in South Rhodesia called the Second Chai Marenga from 1965 until 1979, at which point in 1979, the Thatcher government, the new government, has uh, negotiates the Lancaster House Agreement and power is handed over to Robert Mugabe's political party, NUPF. The most extreme example of British white settlers out in the colonies resisting independence, where they literally declare independence from the empire themselves and become this kind of rogue state very very racist fa essentially fascist state because they believe it'll work out the best for them because yeah there. because they, they are not committed to um, independence they do not not only do they refuse independence they refuse democratic rule they don't want because they are in a minority although they're quite a large white population by standards of colony they as soon as there's democracy they will be massively outnumbered by black voters and so to avoid that happening they, they declare independence and, and run essentially a, a, a very violent militarized state it seems like all of these happen all sorts of different ways and maybe the one commonality is that it's sloppy like it's not it's either not thought through or it happens really fast or or it's just not organized in a way that's very gradual or thoughtful certainly messy and there's a violence to it even if you know even if this is decisions and statutes there's still a there's there's a violence to this right that the decisions and statutes in 1931 which allow South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada to become dominions and have power over their own foreign policy, which is that that's what that independence is. They have power over foreign policy. In the First mm -hmm. World War, they have to go to war to support Britain. In the Second World War, they get to choose. 
And that, oh. that's what independence means in that context. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But that's power being given to white settlers to to do what they want with their colonial populations, their indigenous populations. When we talk about decolonization, you know, okay, so we could say, yeah, Ghana decolonizes in 1957. The British state leaves and it becomes an independent country. They get their own flag. They get their own leader. They, they can run themselves. They have foreign policy. You know, when did Australia decolonize? What's the moment when they decolonize? You know, does Australia right. de- does Australia decolonize when the white people who are of British descent in Australia get to determine their own foreign policy? Is that decolonization? Okay, fine. America America declares independence from Britain in the War of Independence. They get independence. Did they decolonize then? Like, would mm. the would the <laughs> Native American population consider that country to have been? decolonized like it it's interesting it's yeah. it's very messy and complicated you yeah. know did south africa decolonize in 1961 when they declared themselves a republic and left the commonwealth or did they decolonize in 1994 when nelson mandela having been let out of prison four years earlier became the first black leader of south africa after the first democratic elections yeah it is especially uh, connecting the british empire with the american empire like they what the, the state of this is colony or not is very, mm-hmm. very fuzzy all the time. In the U.S., when we learn about like uh, British leadership in the in the middle of the 20th century, we only know about Winston Churchill. I was going to say, uh, you, you learn about British leadership in the 20th century. That's I, I'm, I'm overstating it. We just learned Churchill was cool. That's all we know. Uh, there's a picture of him with a Tommy gun that comes up. Uh, it's very exciting. The latest like big historical work I read is uh, David McCullough's book about Harry Truman. And I learned about just the existence of Clement Attlee from that. Uh, And it turns (laughs) out other people ran Britain in this time besides the one cool guy who's in in the Darkest Hour movie and everything. I I figure Churchill was pretty pro keep every colony we can. I don't know if that's true or not, but were there other people in leadership who didn't feel that way? Yeah, I mean, Churchill famously says, I did not become prime minister. I did not become prime minister to oversee the dissolution of the king's empire. I'm a historian of the Labour Party, um, you know, of the left. It would be very tempting to tell you that the left has always been anti-colonial and has always stood up to imperialism Ah. and has always tried to, you know, resist it. And there have always definitely been politicians on the left who have been anti-imperial, people like Fenner Brockway, who did lots of work with colonial diaspora people living in Britain, did lots of movement work with, set up the movement for colonial freedom, did lots of independence work with independence movements. Clement Attlee in 1945 becomes the first real Labour Party uh, Prime Minister, and ushers in a period of what is known as the second colonial occupation of Africa. Oh, that sounds pretty colonial. (laughs) Where they launch a series of of colonial development initiatives, the most famous of which is the uh, East African Groundnut Scheme, which is growing peanuts in Tanganyika, which is famous because it is so unsuccessful. They, they were just, it was just a farming idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They tried to grow a lot of peanuts. They ended up producing fewer peanuts than they had imported as peanuts to grow peanuts from okay. so it's, it's like spectacularly <laughs> unsuccessful but you know now, see jimmy carter would never make this mistake no, exactly. uh, so <laughs> so it's super tempting and, and often the left in britain has been very guilty of looking back over their own history and saying we're the party of racial equality we're the party of anti-imperialism uh-huh. you know we we it was the, it's the conservatives who really kind of colluded in empire or maybe the liberals you look at joseph chamberlain it's these people who who were imperialists you know we are anti-imperial and in 1960 the prime minister who gives the wind of change speech in south africa saying decolonization is coming to africa is harold Macmillan, who is a conservative party prime minister this was this was a landmark speech it's indicating just, that that colonies would start to be independent yeah that britain would not allow white settlers to to resist decolonization 
with both parties. I mean, I, I, uh, Brexit has been on my mind uh, as with many people. Uh, so like, oh, Churchill and Johnson, same party and Johnson kicked out one of Churchill's descendants. <laughs> That's weird. I believe Attlee and Corbyn, same party labor there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also I get the sense that both of those parties are conservatives are super for Brexit and labor is somewhat for Brexit in some ways, kind of. It's a, it's a complicated thing. But I only bring this all up because it, it seems like that imperial past and that imperial mindset is driving a lot of this Brexit situation today. I don't know if that's fair to say or not. Yeah, I think that would be fair. It's an attitude that best can be summarized as make Britain great again. Make okay. Great Britain great again. Oh, I'm so sorry. Say. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> now, other people talk about it as they're trying to get away from the shackles of the EU. They're trying to become this swashbuckling empire that they were back in the 19th century. Mm. They want to be free. Okay. Does it tie in at all to when we were talking a little bit earlier about Britain feels like it just did empire and did government and democracy better than other European countries? Is it is it sort of a similar thing where they're like, we cannot just be one of these EU countries. We're so different. Yeah, we have such an ego. Okay. Yeah. We have a massive <laughs> inflated self-importance, really. Yeah. And, and, I, and I don't mean to pick on Britain. Like, America barely wants to be part of just the world. We're like, we're not just a country of any kind. Like, you can see it in the language that we use to talk about Brexit. It's not, you don't see Boris Johnson and Theresa May and all the other associated Tories talking about, oh, we're going to go with the EU and negotiate. Or like, when you have a bill that kind of stops no deal Brexit, which would ruin the country. They're talking as that, not talking it as, oh, it's just, it's just a bill. It's a surrender bill. Anyone who disagrees with Brexit is a traitor. Oh boy. Yeah. So it's not friendly relationships. They're, they're using war metaphors. A lot of the narrative is that the EU has, is somehow a colonial power over Britain. This has been used very distastefully before. Britain, okay. Britain needs its own independence process. Britain will, Farage was talking about Britain celebrating Independence Day on the 23rd of June, which was the date of the referendum. Um, <laughs> there's a kind of historical basis to, to some of this in that some British, British people kind of have this sort of truncated chronology where Britain lost the empire and then became part of the European, what was then the EUC. So oh. decolonization happened and then Britain became part of the European Union. So not only did it let its colonies go, it was then colonized by, by the I European. guess, the, the Swiss or something. Yeah, I don't know. The yeah, not, well, not the Swiss. Right, but I mean, uh, the Swedes and the... Yeah. The, Germans. <laughs> the Germans. The Germans. The Germans. That's, that's the one that really bites. I mean, so much oh. of this is tied into Second World War. Yeah, yeah. There's a weird, almost schizophrenic conception of, of Britain sort of poised on the brink of Brexit, which is we used to rule half the world. We bestowed democracy and but we're also the underdog who single-handedly defeated hitler Mm -hmm. and who are now you know threatened by colonization by these frenchies and and the hun and so (laughs) so we're both an underdog and supremely powerful and i think that that actually speaks exactly to the sort of crisis of identity Mm -hmm. that is expressed through brexit which is we we our rightful place our manifest destiny is not (laughs) being just you know a state in the eu we should be ruling the waves and we no longer are so Uh if we leave the eu then our former colonies will come to our aid and we can be great again Mm -hmm. i I think you know make 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 britain great again is actually what brexit is is about they should have used it (laughs) (laughs) the the foreign office or what i mean there is there's a british 
trade campaign, which is put the great in Britain, right? Mm-hmm. What puts the great in Britain in this sense of us? I saw I saw those posters at the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right, yeah. this is genuinely something that is is like a kind of government a way of yeah. thinking about a place in the world. And and Britain, you know, th- there's been a lot of anxiety around sovereignty in the European Union. It's about loss of sovereignty, which kind of you know bites hard if you are a country that believes you are the mother of parliaments. The idea that you're losing sovereignty to the European Union and that this is somehow particularly shameful because it wasn't. Britain wasn't defeated through war. Britain like willingly handed over these powers to Europe as well. So it was wow. it sort of became so powerless that it actually agreed to this thing. And you know, people people talk a lot about imperial nostalgia and that the Brexit is about imperial nostalgia. That to some extent is true, but actually, I think Kim is totally right. And actually, a lot of it is Second World War and this kind of wow. weird this weird thing where Britain can believe that it stood alone after the fall of France, before America entered the war, before Russia. Um, started to fight against Britain. Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany, but alone meant with 500 million colonial citizens behind it. Right. So this it's quite a few. <laughs> it's quite a lot. And there's this real kind of desire to return back to this theoretical moment in British history where Britain was very powerful, but this is also a really racialized narrative. A lot of the Leave campaign was very much focused on immigration. Uh, and immigration yeah. from the EU is is European immigration. You know, there's a freedom to live and work anywhere in the European Union. But this was actually framed in a really racialized way. So a lot of, again, a lot of the posters, UKIP's posters, Farage unveiled this poster um, that said breaking point on it and talked about Britain being swamped by migrants. And the photograph was of kind of, it was of migrants crossing an Eastern European border. And it was kind of notable that the picture was of, of kind of brown skinned people moving across the space. And, and you know, Brexit is often framed around, we want to return back to this moment of, I don't know, the 1950s when theoretically in their imagination, Britain was a white country. A lot of the Brexit narratives is, oh, you know, you go to places in England now, you don't hear English spoken. That kind of <laughs> John, thing. John Cleese said yeah. not too long ago, he doesn't recognise London anymore or something yeah. like that. John uh, Cleese said that? Yeah. yeah. Man. As if London has not was not the centre of an imperial metropolis in the in the nineteenth century, which is so similar <laughs> to to the sort of the, the Trump Trumpian yeah. uh, narrative yeah, about make America great again, as in before you know sixties. It's it's a nostalgia that's sort of blighted by a complete uh, ignorance, mm. uh, yeah. because you can only be nostalgic about a past if if you deliberately ignore yeah. all the things that uh, people today would not actually own up to. No. So, sure. so, so Brexit is not about racism. How dare you suggest that? That's that's right. a, that's that's, that's yeah. a comeback. Now you've done the worst thing. Exactly. Yeah, you've yeah. someone of yeah. ah, that's the, It's that's much the worse being one. described as a as a racist than being racist. Yeah. Oh man. And Same was, countries, man. Ugh. There was a whole narrative during the campaign, actually, where UKIP tried to say, well, if we leave the European Union and we don't have so many European people coming over here, we'll be able to allow these people from from the Commonwealth to come. You know, they try to spin wow. it as, oh no, this is this is the opposite of racism. We want to we want to open up migration to our former empire, but it was framed really oh. around former empire. And a lot of the supposed solutions for Britain leaving the European Union, which is you know its biggest trading partner, very economically important, was the idea that Britain would start trading with what is known as Kanzuk, which is Canada, New Zealand, and. Australia, this oh, okay. and the UK, right? This idea again, a sort of empire 2.0 built on whiteness. <laughs> we just pick right. these quite wealthy countries that we think we have a good relationship with, and surely these people will trade with us, and they will rescue us, and we'll be fine. Despite the fact, that actually, Australia and New Zealand have said, "Well, we don't, we're not really 
that's not really we, <laughs> we're, we're not really into you well exactly you know they're interested <laughs> well, in trading with britain because we have access to european markets isn't it aren't aren't australia and new zealand like the furthest point from here if i yeah. if i check google maps <laughs> like it's a long boat ride yeah <laughs> then and now you know people mocked up maps of kansas that had these kind of and, oh, and flags weird. and weird. things you know that it was this idea that we would go through to this this sort of this empire reimagined, which is empire with no violence, no oppression, no exploitation. Empire reimagined as a sort of lovely fraternal organization where everyone trades with one another and, and everyone speaks English, and isn't it lovely? And we right. all sing God Save the Queen and cucumber sandwiches. It's when you mistake sort of propaganda posters from the two world wars yeah. for historical fact. When yeah. you have sort of blonde white boys, they're flocking to the standard and. You know, joining the, the empire needs you, and you've got this sort of the lion mm -hmm. and all, all the the lions are rallying to Britain's core. That's somehow taken seriously yeah. today. You know, yeah, a century yeah. later, yeah. we'll we'll link one. Uh, this was a, there was a nineteen fifteen poster where the the top headline was "The Empire Needs Men," and then it's like one lion with a mane, and then four other lions with no mane that look younger, mm -hmm. and then they're labeled Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, yeah. and it says, helped by the young lions, the old lion defies his foes and lists now. And I assume India's only on there because it concretely contributed so many troops to the army. The yeah. others are, are the, the quote-unquote white colonies, exactly. and that's amazing that that would be the next plan for these Brexit people. It's... <laughs> If that's what you believe empire was, if you think Britain was, you know, this lovely Britain Ma was maternal, a, yeah, a, a maternal power. Britain, Britain was yeah. this incredibly humanitarian empire that spread civilization and Christianity and democracy around the world. Why would these people not want to help us now? All of the things we've been talking about kind of come together in this. You can only imagine a future for Britain which is predicated on like this lovely Commonwealth corporation. If you th understand the empire to have been fundamentally non-violent if you, if you can only understand this as being britain's future if you're willfully blind to how britain actually worked in the past and and also blind to how fast and and quickly all these colonies left right it's you know mm -hmm. like it, it seems like i mean i know they're just operating on fantasy principles but but it should be clearer that all of the colonies departing within a very short time frame indicated that that was not a a, a positive relationship or one that was going to last I mean, and also they're often, they're not particularly interested in building relationships with African ex-colonies, for example. It, it, it's not about that. It's about an imagined community of whiteness. It's, we're also going to buy your chlorinated chicken. You know, we, we, it's this kind of sense, not yours specifically, America's. Was um, <laughs> this about chicken? I don't uh, understand. Uh, so there's this idea that America is going to save us when we, when we leave the European Union because we will enter trade agreements with them, but Britain has quite high food safety standards, which America doesn't Oh. Yeah, we don't. We get excited about the Popeyes chicken sandwich. That's that's our our viral thing. We don't we don't check the quality, man. That's not. <laughs> so this, you know, it's the idea. This is this is sort of bizarre fantasy about how this world is going to work. Empire nostalgia and chlorinated chicken. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the twenty first century. Uh, <laughs> two two real powerful highs, man. Uh, <laughs> Can't wait for Brexit, Britain. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Adam Weirs, Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley, and Dr. Kim Wagner for, uh, again, taking on a massive topic. This might be one of the larger topics we've ever tried to do in an episode, and just diving into so many things about it with me in a, in a way that I, I hope feels complete to them, because I think that's a really nice rundown of it uh, that, that we got out of it. 
And a large topic like this commends itself to a large section of food notes because you can find the further information you seek and require and just want to dig into right there. In particular, if you want to gain things from our experts, I highly recommend a couple books uh, by Dr. Kim Wagner. One of them is called The Skull of Alumbeg, The Life and Death of a Rebel of 1857. And this is about that story that he mentioned earlier in the episode about the people running a pub in England having the skull of a rebel soldier from 1857 India, which is a pretty bizarre encapsulation of the whole British Empire project, and he writes about it uh, very wonderfully in that book. His latest book will also take you further into the, the movement for independence in India. It is called Amritsar 1919, An Empire of Fear and the Making of a Massacre. Uh, Amritsar uh, was the location in 1919 of a major massacre of people uh, by the British military in the region. And so if you, if you look at those or any of his other work, you'll in particular gain uh, knowledge of how India went from uh, its own place to a massive British colony to independent once again, and, and all the uh, chaos that was involved in that. We'll also be linking many publications and pieces by Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley, uh, in particular an amazing piece of work on the Labour Party, Britain's uh, Labour with a U party, that is the, the more liberal party of uh, the two main ones, not that there's just two, but like we said, the one that Jeremy Corbyn's in now, the one that Clement Attlee was in at the time uh, that we were talking about in particular, this 1920s to 60s period when everything turned independent. And she does some amazing examination of how that party's goals and aims as an overall party uh, sort of struggled with the project of imperialism when they were in power, because ostensibly they should have been in charge of just immediately tearing down all the colonies and freeing them right away. And in practice, it was a little harder than that. We'll also be linking Dr. Charlotte Lydia Riley's podcast. It is called Tomorrow Never Knows. Tomorrow Never Knows is a podcast by historians Charlotte Lydia Riley and Emma London, and they dive into uh, just all sorts of different topics with a historical bent and perspective on it, uh, also an international perspective as well. Uh, so it's a great time, and it's named after the best Mad Men scene, so that's a good thing too. Anyway, I know that's an extensive footnote section, but we're dealing with uh, the largest empire of, I believe, human history, uh, especially population-wise, because that's always gone up over time. Uh, so there's a lot there, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. And in the meantime, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Mark Haynes at Great Big Owl Studios in beautiful downtown London, England. And I highly recommend you look them up if you ever want to tape something there. They're just great. And it was then edited by Chris Souza, who I also highly recommend in all sorts of ways. He's awesome. Special thanks this week to Colin Anderson, Dr. Andrew Wender-Cohen, and Dr. Nicholas Guyot for helping make this episode come together. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where, uh, you know, I, I think maybe the Russians have an empire. Too many bots. Ah, topical about the Russians. Take that. My own Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then.
This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.